Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Alrighty, we're in John's Gospel. We're taking about a year. We're going deep dive into John's Gospel. We're in John chapter 18. If you've got a Bible, and it's interesting, I'll never forget. I don't know if you had this experience. The first time I logged on to check out Google Earth, I had heard about it and logged on, and there is a picture of the entire planet. And I think, wow, that's God's perspective. It's very amazing to see things from God's vantage point. And then you could plug in an address and then frame by frame, everything narrows in to a very precise location that you get close up eyewitness account of. And you need to know that in some regard, your Bible functions like that. The Bible opens in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, there's the cosmos. And then the rest of the Bible just narrows in frame by frame by frame by frame with everything concentrated, gathering information, focusing attention to one point and to one place. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's where we find ourselves in John's gospel today. In John chapter 18, Jesus is just moments from going to the cross to suffer and die in our place for our sins. All of the Bible, all of human history has been slowly, carefully, methodically, prophetically, intentionally gaining momentum and steam, bringing us to that place where Jesus Christ, our great God and savior is ultimately gonna hang on a cross. And so we pick up the story today and the story starts with an unholy alliance in John chapter 18, uh, verses one through three. When Jesus had spoken these words, he'd just been teaching and praying with and for his disciples and leaders. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, probably the garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who what? Betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This is darkness. All of this happens at night. It is under the cover of darkness. Not only is the landscape physically dark, It is spiritually dark. And when he speaks of the Kidron Valley, there is the Mount of Olives and there is the Temple Mount. And between the two up on high points is this valley called Kidron. And what they are doing, it says, is crossing over the brook that lay at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. We've been there as a family. This area is much more compact than I would have imagined. It's not a large geographic area, but it is dark, physically, it is dark spiritually. Jesus is with his 11 disciples. Judas is gone. All the way back in chapter 13, verse 27, we read that Satan filled Judas and he departed. He was gone. That much of Jesus' life in ministry uh, was lived up until about the middle of John's gospel. The gospel of John basically breaks into two portions, the first 33 years and then the final week. And this is in the final week. If this was a filmmaker, this is where the camera would pan in, where the movement would slow, where there would be focused intentionality on every single detail that was occurring because we reached the climax in the story and the significant pivot point in human history. 
So Jesus is with his 11. One is gone, Judas the betrayer. They're going under the cover of darkness at night through the Kidron Valley. They're crossing over a brook or a stream at the base of the Kidron Valley. And you need to know that it would have been flowing with blood. This was the season of Passover where God's people would bring a lamb without spot or blemish. That is to show the forthcoming and foreshadowing of Jesus. Uh, John the baptizer said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in reference to Jesus. In Corinthians, it tells us Christ, our Passover lamb has been slain. So they would bring an animal without spot or blemish showing the sinless perfection of the coming of Jesus. They would bring it to the temple. The priest would lay hands, confess the sins of the people over the animal and then slaughter the animal as a substitute because the wage for sin is death. Blood would flow out of the temple and during this high holiday, their holy day, upwards of 200,000 lambs were slain. What that means is that a literal river of blood flows out of the temple, flows down into the Kidron Valley. And as Jesus is stepping over the brook, There is blood in the brook. There is darkness around him. There is spiritual forces of darkness against him. This is as dark and as demonic and as brooding and as foreshadowing as could possibly be. And John reports all of this because he was there. He was an eyewitness. We need to trust the eyewitness testimony of John. John will include for us today some details that you may not otherwise know, that we would not otherwise know. There are four gospels in the New Testament that basically means biography. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the first three. They are called the synoptic gospels. 60% of their material is common, shared, and familiar. John's gospel was written last. John wrote to fill in any things that may be missing that God wanted to ensure were included in the record of Jesus. 90% of John's gospel is unique. 90% of John's gospel is not found anywhere else in the history of the world. He was there And he writes for us an eyewitness account of the excruciating details of the final hours of the life of Jesus Christ. And what we see here as well is that they're going to a garden. Uh, Some commentators believe that this was a private garden that was owned by an affluent supporter of Jesus' ministry. Some of you, you have riches and you have real estate. Some of you are generous and you'll share. You'll allow someone to borrow your home or use your vacation property or or borrow your office for their startup company, whatever the case might be. It seems likely because Jesus was poor that this was not his private garden, but it was one that belonged to someone who supported him and gave him a key. And so he and his disciples would meet there often. They'd go there to pray, maybe to plan for ministry. I told our staff as we gathered this week for staff Bible study, this might've been the place that they had their staff meetings. They all knew where to meet, they knew when to meet. This was their regular place of meeting with God. And now Judas Iscariot being led by Satan is going to take the place that is created to meet with God and use it as the place to murder God. and he forms an unholy alliance. An unholy alliance is where people who are not aligned come together and align against a common enemy. Here, he mentions Roman soldiers and also religious leaders. The Romans and the religious, they did not get along 
they constantly annoyed one another. There was ongoing escalating friction between these two groups. The Roman Empire was one that would march through its military and overtake various nations and citizens and then absorb them into the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire was the largest and strongest empire on the earth. And they didn't care what your allegiances or beliefs were as long as you would declare Caesar is Lord. As long as your ultimate allegiance was to their political leader. Well, for God's people, this was a problem. They declared that God was Lord, not Caesar. They wanted to be under the laws of scripture, not under the godless laws of Rome. There was this constant battle between the Roman leaders and the religious leaders. And God's people hated being under the oversight of the Roman government because they were being taxed to fund things through the government that they despised. Can any of you relate to this? Can anyone relate? Do you ever fill out your taxes and go, I can't believe I'm funding that. I read the word of God and then they take my money to do things that violate the word of God. That was the conflict between the Roman and the religious leaders. What Judas does is he brings them together into an unholy alliance. An unholy alliance is demonic. We already learned again, John 13, 27, that Satan fills Judas. Everything that Judas plots and plans is demonic. When he brings together religious leaders and he brings together Roman leaders, he is bringing together factions who have one thing in common, and that is that they do not want Jesus to be in authority. In declaring himself to be God, Jesus was a threat to both the religious and also the Roman leadership. He was putting himself over Caesar and he was putting himself over religious leadership. And they both conspired together to take him down all the way to the grave. Have you ever seen it, maybe in politics, maybe in family, maybe in business, tragically, maybe even in ministry, where people who have nothing in common are not for one another and maybe don't even like one another, they align together like two barrels on a gun to do harm. That's an unholy alliance. It's amazing how sometimes people who don't know each other and are evil are brought together and we wonder how did they meet? Well, they didn't know each other, but their demons do. And the demons that are working in them and through them bring them together into an unholy alliance. That's what's happening here. This is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The battle that started in heaven when Satan declared war on God and he lost and was cast down. Now he is working through Judas who has joined with the fallen angels and the demons. And he is making a second run at a coup attempt to overthrow and overtake Jesus Christ as Lord. The Roman soldiers numbered 600 armed men. That's what a band means. It's a military term signifying 600 men. It's 600 men against 12. In addition, there were officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So in addition to the 600 trained, armed 
Roman soldiers, the toughest soldiers on the earth in that day, there were a countless number of religious soldiers as well. We might have 700, 800, 1,000. We don't even know the entire number. Judas here is one who is covert. He has been plotting and planning for a long time. You do not suddenly get legal authority to arrest or kill a group of men. You do not automatically gather 600 soldiers that have a coordinated military campaign. You do not recruit with them religious leaders to support you with their own soldiers, all meeting at the same time, the same place. This is an ambush. This is not something that happens suddenly. This is something that was plotted carefully. And Judas serves as one who represents the covert. He is sneaky, he is deceptive, he is dishonest. He is one that you don't know who he is until his plot unfolds, and here it is. Judas comes with all of these soldiers, and this had to be a terrifying moment. Put yourself in that moment. You're there with Jesus, it's the darkness of night, and all of a sudden, everything surrounding you lights up. It's lanterns and torches, and you hear this march of soldiers, hundreds of them. You hear their swords rattle in their scabbards. This is a terrifying moment. If you've ever been present for a military campaign or, a, or an arrest, you know how heightened those moments are. That is exactly the scene that we find ourselves in. And Judas betrays. Judas betrayed him. There's a big difference between failing and betraying. In a short bit, you're gonna learn about Peter who failed Jesus. Judas here betrays Jesus. We all fail, but you can have a relationship with someone who fails you. Betrayal is deeper, betrayal is more plotted, betrayal is more sinister, betrayal is more demonic. Failure is I failed you, but I love you. Betrayal is, I do not love you and I have been plotting to harm you. This had to be an astounding moment for the other disciples. There is a line on one side is Jesus and the 11. On the other side are hundreds of soldiers and who is with them? Judas. He is a leader. He is a coordinator. He is a plotter, he is covert. He is covert and he is evil. These Roman leaders, they trusted in power. These religious leaders, they trusted in power. The one thing they have in common, the religious leaders want spiritual authority. The Romans want legal authority. If you're here and your whole thing is power, your whole thing is control, your whole thing is authority, that's you. Judas trusts in, loves money. He's a lover of money. Jesus says you can't love God in money. He loves money and he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If you're here and you live for money and you're a lover of money, you're Judas. 
If you're here and you live for power and you love power, you're like the soldiers. In this instance, not only do we see who Jesus is, we see who we are. Put yourself in the story and my friend, you cannot be Jesus in the story. You could be one of the disciples. You could be the impetuous Peter. You could be Judas the betrayer. You can be the power hungry soldier. And there's Jesus. What's he gonna do? It's interesting because he'd just been praying with them and for them, preparing them. And now the moment has come. Now, when it speaks of these Pharisees, think of it in terms of a political party. It's almost like that. In that day, there were four primary groupings among Jewish people. And they saw the problem and they each offered a different solution. And to this day, the names have changed, but the teams remain the same. So think with me for a moment, which group would you be with? Which team would you be on? First, there were the zealots. The zealots thought that the answer was political. We need to overthrow the Roman government. We need to rise up and revolt. We need to have an election. We need to get our leader in place. Our leader needs to carry forth our vision and values. We just need political answers. Some of you are zealots. You watch the news more than you read the Bible. You start the day by checking the latest news story rather than reading the scriptures and meeting with God. Some of your emotional life is far more connected to political events than it is to eternal things. The second group were the Sadducees. They were the liberals. They were the progressives. When there was cultural pressure, they would simply alter and change their beliefs. They had fear of man, not fear of God. So if you came to a Sadducee and there was great cultural pressure against a biblical issue, they would edit God's word so that you would like them because they wanted to please people and not God. Then there were the Essenes. We would call them the Charismatics or the Pentecostals. They got sick of earthly things, so they just committed themselves to heavenly things. Prayer meetings, worship, conferences, angels, prophecy. We're just gonna enjoy the Lord, forget everyone and everything else. Some of you, that's you. You're like, I don't know what's going on. I was just speaking in tongues, singing and praying. I know that Jesus is coming. I got a chart with the rapture. And any moment now, I'm just gonna be gone, okay? And then the fourth group was the Pharisees. They were the conservatives. Some of you are like, wait a minute, there are four bad teams. Yeah, that's why Jesus came because these teams aren't the solution. These teams are the problem. The Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the traditionalist. They started with what I believe was a good intent. People are not obeying the laws of God. We need to, to use our language, we need to get back to the Bible. We need to teach what the word of God says and the people of God need to obey the word of God. Is that good or bad? That's good. That's good. And they ended up murdering Jesus. Okay. I'm a Bible teacher. What team would I be on? Probably the Pharisees. The apostle Paul was on that team until he got saved. 
The problem was not that they went back to the Bible, but they went beyond the Bible. The heart of Phariseeism is this, God made laws and so do we. That's the problem. We'll enforce God's laws and our laws and we'll put our laws at the same level as God's laws. Some of you do that. Some of you have laws that God never made, but you enforce them as if they were God's laws. And you will pour out your wrath on people if they violate your laws. So what a Pharisee does, they say, God makes laws. If you break God's laws, he pours out his wrath. Hey, God, good idea. We're here to help. We'll make laws and pour out our wrath if they disobey our laws too. Jesus shows up and their problem with him is this. He's not biblical. They have a verse for everything they do and it's all wrong because they have the wrong verses. I had a car, my first car was a 1956 Chevy. I bought it as a kid and it was out of alignment. So every time I pumped the brakes, it would veer to the right. That's a Pharisee, okay? <laughs> right, they're out of alignment. They veer, to the, they veer to the right. You're more conservative than God. You're over in the ditch. The Sadducees, they veer to the left, hit the brakes. They're over in the ditch on the left. What team would you be on? Just think about it. How many of you would be the Zealots? How many of you would be the Sadducees? How many of you would be the Essenes? How many of us would be the Pharisees? When we read the story, we gotta ask, okay, who would I be? And God, what are my proclivities and tendencies? And make me aware of those so that I can be humble. Because at the end of the day, their Bible study ended up with murdering God. Their Bible study ended up with murdering God. Non-relational, judgmental, legalistic, vengeful, rule-based fear, control. That's the heart of Phariseeism. The story continues. Then Jesus, John 18, four through nine, knowing what? All that would happen to him. I hear people all the time saying, I wish God would just tell me my future. I don't, I don't wanna know what's coming. I'd be, I would spend every day terrified, amen? How many of you things happen in your life and you're like, I'm glad I didn't see this coming. I've been sleeping with a helmet on, a cup and one eye open. I would have been paranoid every day. I, I'm not ready for this. God sees and knows all. I told you before, sometimes I'll watch the news and I'll watch the History Channel. When I watch the news, I get a little anxious because the outcome of events is uncertain. When I watch the History Channel, I'm pretty calm because I know the outcome. For God, everything is the History Channel, nothing is the news. He sees it all as completed and done. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? So let me say this, previously in John's gospel, they would come to arrest him, crowds would harass him, mobs would come against him. And what it would record is that Jesus withdrew, he slipped away, he found a way out, he escaped. Here, he stepped forward. The moral of the story is this, you need to walk in God's will. Sometimes that means you walk away. Sometimes that means you step forward. Some of, you, some of you say, 
I always just step forward. No, no, sometimes you gotta walk away. Somebody say, I always walk away. No, sometimes you gotta step forward. Jesus walked away until the day came that it was time to step forward. He stepped forward. And he said to them, whom do you seek? Again, imagine the intensity of this moment. Lanterns, torches, swords, hundreds of soldiers, the 12, Jesus and the 11, completely surrounded military ambush. Jesus, Jesus is the one who's in authority. He sets the agenda. He asks the questions and he commands the soldiers. Whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? Who do you want? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So the disciples are looking at Judas. A couple hours ago, we had dinner with this guy. He's the bookkeeper, he's the CFO, he's the accountant. Now they know he's been stealing the whole time, plotting the whole time. He's standing against Jesus. He's standing against the people who are standing with Jesus. I have seen this in more than 20 years of ministry as a senior pastor. It is devastating. It is heartbreaking. When someone separates themselves from Jesus, opposes Jesus and opposes those who are with Jesus. This had to be so confusing for the disciples. This had to be so bewildering for the followers. Judas was our pastor and now he's against Jesus and he's against the other pastors. What is happening? It's demonic. That divisive rebellion in heaven has brought itself to the earth. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is awesome, amen? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, that's me. Hundreds of guys, down. I'm surprised nobody got saved at that point. Like, hey, I, you know, hey, hey oh, whoa. I feel like maybe we're on the wrong side of this thing. I just, <laughs> I'm gonna throw it out there. I know we are supposed to get this guy, but it seems like maybe he's the right one. Amen? Not amazing? Hundreds of guys go down. I, that's crazy armed guard, soldiers. I, I didn't have this in my notes. I think this is a revelation. Let me, let me share it with you. Everybody goes down. The only person left standing is Jesus and those who are standing with Jesus. This is the end of human history. Everyone goes down, Jesus stands, and those who stand with Jesus also stand, okay? That's what happens here. So he asked them again, who do you seek? If it were me, I'd be like, you know, we're not sure. We're gonna convene a meeting. <laughs> After the going to the ground thing, we need to double check what the plan was here. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. Jesus is put to death because he keeps saying he's God. He fed hungry people, but they didn't crucify him for that. He loved children, they didn't crucify him for that. 
He forgave people, but they didn't crucify him for that. He kept saying he was God. That's why the Romans said he must die because Jesus is not Lord, Caesar is Lord. That's why the religious leader said he must die. He is claiming to be God, that is blasphemy. We must kill him to silence him. Make no mistake, if Jesus didn't say he was God, he would never have been put to death. There is no major world religion in the history of the world that has its founder declaring that he is God with one exception, Jesus Christ. So if you seek me, let these men go. I love that Jesus tells unbelieving soldiers what to do. You know you've got authority, right? Right now, if an invading army showed up and one of you told them what to do and they did it, that would be amazing. Jesus has authority. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. We looked at that in John 17, his high priestly prayer where Jesus said, it's gonna look like I lost one, Judas, but I didn't lose him because I never had him. Judas was not a believer, Judas was a betrayer. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can fake it. That was Judas. He was covert and now his heart has been made overt. We now know who he is. We now know what he's done. Here we find two names for Jesus. One, he calls himself the I am. The religious leaders would have known this name. All the way back in Exodus, God's people, a nation of a few million, they were under the leadership and the bondage of Pharaoh. It was a demonic kingdom, counterfeit priests, counterfeit signs, wonders, miracles, demonic powers. It was a corrupt place. And God's people were enslaved and oppressed. And God raises up one humble servant, a man named Moses. He is a type of Jesus. He stands against this empire of darkness and he commands that God's people be set free to worship. And this is their liberation, their deliverance. And all of this comes, this calling comes to Moses in the middle of the desert. We know what that's like. And he's having a conversation and he is told, go in and tell the Pharaoh, the mightiest man on earth, let my people go that they may be free to worship me. Go tell Pharaoh, his days are done. The real God has showed up. Moses has a very good question, reasonable. Uh, whom should I say has sent me? Because he's talking to a, a bush. It's hard to show up to the president of the strongest nation on the earth and say, I was talking to this plant. Wow, this plant is really unhappy. They'll be like, you've been smoking that plant. That's the problem that you obviously have. If you're talking to a plant, it's because you were smoking the plant. So what he asks is, who has sent me? And the bush, God through the bush, just goes to show, doesn't matter who or what God works through, his power is the issue. Tell them, tell him, I am has sent you. That name was so sacred that God's people wouldn't write it down or speak it. They were fearful of taking the Lord's name in vain so they wouldn't even use it. This is why we don't take the Lord's name in vain. And here Jesus says, I am. Whoa, 
You're the God of Moses. You're the God of deliverance. You're the God who took down the nation, the empire of Egypt. And now you're here in Rome. You're up against the same political, religious, and demonic forces. And you're here to set up your kingdom. Second name, Jesus of Nazareth. There is supernatural, unprecedented, unparalleled authority in the name of Jesus. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. This is why we don't just talk about some general, nebulous God that you can pour meaning into as you see fit. Our God has a name, his name is Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus taught us about his name a little bit previously in John 14, 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, he's referring here to prayer, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We pray in Jesus' name. We ask in Jesus' name. We exercise spiritual authority in Jesus' name. When we speak the name of Jesus, not only do people hear, but powers, principalities, and spirits are put on alert that our King and His kingdom comes with all authority. The name of Jesus is the strongest name. The name of Jesus is the greatest name. The name of Jesus is the truest name. If you and I have a great opportunity to speak the name of Jesus, then we are greatly blessed. Here's how the apostle Paul says it in Philippians 2, verses eight through 10, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is exactly where we find ourselves in the storyline of John's gospel. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Your name, my name, our name does not matter. The names of people, the names of movements, the names of leaders come and go. It's the name of Jesus that endures with all authority eternally. That Jesus' name is above every name. Our goal should not be to make our name great, but to make his name great. Bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Both on the earth and under the earth, that's hell, to the glory of God the Father. The question is not, will you bend your knee at the name of Jesus? The question is, will you bend it now for salvation or bend it then for damnation? In that moment, Jesus spoke his name and what happened to hundreds of soldiers? They took a knee. You need to know that you will bend your knee before Jesus. You'll do it in this life for salvation. You'll do it after this life for damnation. Everyone bends their knee to the name of Jesus. You are not gonna die, stand before a mirror and make an excuse. You're gonna die, stand before Jesus and make an account. We take ourselves way too seriously. We take Jesus way too lightly. And we're not alone. One of his disciples, Peter, gives us hope. Here's Peter. We love Peter. 
right? We, most people, if you say, pick your favorite disciple, Peter, you know why? He always gets it right the third time, always. <laughs> always gets it right. He is a hot mess minus the hot. He is, he is a situation. Peter is a reality television show waiting to be filmed. He is nuttier than a Snickers bar. This guy, he, he's, he's, he's just drama. He's just all the time. Judas was covert, Peter is overt. Peter can't shut up, that's why I love him. Uh, we never have to guess what Peter's thinking, amen? Somebody's gotta pull him aside like, bro, you gotta find your inner voice. You gotta find it, you gotta, you gotta work on that, right? What's the difference between Peter, who's gonna fail Jesus, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus? Peter actually loves Jesus, so Jesus can work through the failure. Judas never loves Jesus, and so their relationship comes to an end. Then Simon Peter having a sword. The disciples pack. We're in Arizona, open carry. There's your life first, man. I just gave you one. Uh, the disciples packed. I'm a disciple. Ergo, I pack. All right. They, they, Peter happens to have a sword. He's a fisherman. I don't know about you. I've never seen a guy in a boat who really needs a sword, right? This is crazy. I, I, I learned earlier when we were in John's gospel, Jesus is at the temple, gets upset and it says, and Jesus made a whip. I was like, Jesus knows how to make whips? <laughs> and so Jesus got a whip and the disciples got swords, okay? This is the Arizona gospel. That's what John is. It's the Arizona gospel. Peter's like, I got a sword, right? Now, again, it's 12 guys against 600 plus. Here's Peter, I got this. That's Peter. <laughs> At best, they each need to fight through 50, 60, 70 guys to go home. This is not smart, amen? Let's say seven, 800 guys surround you and you pull your gun, you're gonna lose. <sighs> he drew it and he, he struck the high priest servant. That guy's a slave. That guy doesn't even wanna be there. <laughs> He's a slave. They're, they're like, you know, it's the middle of the night. They're like, hey, Malchus, get up. Get up. What are we doing? We're gonna, uh, I hate being a slave. Oh, whatever. He doesn't, he's probably the one guy without a sword. <laughs> if you give the slave a sword, he might set himself free. They're like, you just stand there, Malchus, and look significant. All right. You know, he's like the intern. Peter goes after the intern. Peter's like, I'm gonna take the slave, the unarmed slave. I'm like, I'm gonna get him. And cut off his right ear. You know what that is? That's a miss. You'll hear soldiers with swords saying, I'm gonna take some heads today. I've never heard the guys like, I'm gonna get an ear. I'm gonna get an ear. <laughs> That's how I go. Malchus is like, really? Really, really? That's what we're doing today. The servant's name was Malchus. That's crazy. That guy made the Bible. I can imagine that Larry's like, well, kids, good news. Dad made the Bible. <laughs> 
bad news, I got my ear chopped off. That's, that's the only thing they said, you know? We're kind of famous, right? <laughs> this is so crazy. People say all the time, people made this stuff up. Who makes this up, right? Like, <laughs> oh gosh. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup that the Father is given me? Let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little. Don't you love Peter? How many of you are like, I get it. So Peter at this point, he's been with Jesus for three years. He's discipled. This is mature Peter. <laughs> How many of you are like, I've known Jesus for some years and I do dumber stuff than that. Well, then there's help for us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Like, okay, Judas, that's a little dark. Peter, you're like, if he made it, I'm feeling more hopeful, right? <laughs> How many of you though, you've been with Jesus a while and you're like, I still do stupid stuff. And here's the heart of Peter. God, you need help. Good thing I'm here. God, this isn't going well. I got this. How many of us do this? All the time, all of us. Some people say that Peter was courageous and then you're gonna see, come back. We do this every Sunday. Uh, keep reading in John's gospel. There's another occasion where they do arrest Jesus. He's about ready to die. And Peter's warming himself by the fire and a little girl comes up, says, don't you know Jesus? And he says, no, I don't know him. I never met him, starts cursing, right? If I say some potty mouth words, then she'll definitely not think I'm a disciple. Here's the thing with Peter. It's not that he's courageous and not courageous. It's that he's always impetuous. How many of you are like that? You're impet you overreact. So the soldiers show up, he's like, I got this. The little girl shows up, he's like, I'm scared, right? I, I got a friend of mine, I love him, but I said, dude, you need to find a dimmer switch for your life. Right? <laughs> You're on or off, it's all or nothing. Some people are very passionate, very impetuous, very emotional, very responsive. That's Peter, that's Peter, that's, P that's all of us. Just thinking about it too. Uh, some of the other gospels, they say that Jesus did something for this guy, Malchus. Do you know what it is? He picked up his ear and he healed him. I wonder if it was before he rebuked Peter. Be like, hey, Malchus, you need to hear this, right? Let me... <laughs> what I love in this is Jesus is being really gracious to everybody. He strikes the soldiers down, but he doesn't strike them dead. He heals Malchus, even though Malchus is opposing him. And he even teaches Peter, because here's the thing with Peter, in that moment, should it be about Jesus or Peter? Should be about Jesus. What is Peter making it about? Peter. Peter's always the guy like, hey, I'm here. And Jesus is like, uh, it's not about you. We all do this all the time. We all do this all the time. And then Jesus says something, let me read it here. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Next slide, please. Let's talk about this. This is, this is kind of strange language, amen? Drink of a cup, what is that? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
What is this cup? This is the cup of the wrath of God. If you wanna do a little deeper dive Bible study, go to a place like Jeremiah 25 or Isaiah 51. The Old Testament speaks of God's wrath in terms of a cup, okay? I'm gonna tell you about the wrath of God because my job is to teach the Bible. Paul, as he was departing a church that he loved, said, I have not ceased to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God's word. What Paul is saying is, I taught you everything and I didn't skip the stuff that you didn't wanna hear. The wrath of God is a very significant storyline and theme through the scriptures. The wrath of God appears some 600 times in the Old Testament in roughly 20 different words. God's wrath is poured out on whole nations. God's wrath is poured out on sinful, rebellious cities. God's wrath is his justice. Some of you would say, no, 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 God is love, God is love, God is love. God loves his people and gives wrath to those who are his enemies. The number one attribute in the Bible of God that is spoken of more than anything is the holiness of God. God is good, not bad. God is just, not unjust. God is active, not passive. The wrath of God is not only in the Old Testament. Some people will say, yes, the wrath of God is in the Old Testament, but the New Testament is about the love of God. The New Testament also speaks of the wrath of God. I'll give you an example from Colossians chapter two. Put to death, kill that which killed Jesus, sin. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. See, there's a culture in heaven, the kingdom of God. There is a culture in hell, the wrath of God. As you are on the earth, you need to choose. Will I live? Kingdom down culture or hell up culture? Say, what is hell up culture? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Or to say it another way, America. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's like a fire is set and that fire is burning and it is coming to your house. The wrath of God is the justice of God. Some people say, I don't know how God could send people to hell. Here's my question. How could God take people to heaven? If God is perfect and heaven is perfect and we are imperfect, why in the world do we expect that we should spend forever there? God is far holier than we think and we are far more sinful than we think. Here at the arrest of Jesus, two things are exposed, the goodness of God and the fallenness of all humanity. Some, some deny the wrath of God. 
Some ignore the wrath of God and some mock the wrath of God. I hear this all the time. God must not have a problem with me. I do whatever I want. My life is great. Nothing happens. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have thought that? How many of you have seen that? How many of you are frustrated? Why do evil people doing evil things? I'm not talking about just the average typical person who's struggling and stumbling. I'm talking about harming children, murdering babies, assaulting women, evil. Why does that continue? Why does nothing happen? Why does God not show up? Why doesn't God stop it? Why doesn't God do something? God's wrath exists in two forms. Romans chapter one speaks of the passive wrath of God. Romans chapter two speaks of the active wrath of God. Um, I'll summarize it for you. I'm thinking next year we might take the whole year and go through the book of Romans. But today, let me summarize the passive and the active wrath of God in chapters one and two. In Romans chapter one, Paul says, 118, the wrath of God is revealed. A few verses later, 24, 25, he says, and God handed them over. If you are being allowed to do whatever the hell you want to do, you are experiencing the wrath of God. He's not stopping you. He's not intervening. This is exactly what Jesus just did to Judas. What you wanna do, go do it. He didn't stop him. He let him self-destruct. Self the passive wrath of God is where you get to do what you want to do but do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. The passive wrath of God is like a wick that is lit and burns until then it explodes in the active wrath of God. Romans chapter two. And Romans chapter one, by the way, is sexual sin and depravity of every sort and kind. It is a nation of people having parades for things that they should have funerals for. Romans 2, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Those who rebel against God, those who reject his son, Jesus Christ, are getting away with nothing. They are storing up everything for the day of wrath. I yell not because I'm angry, but because I'm worried, because I love you. If your house was on fire and I said, I think that you should perhaps consider departing at some point. <laughs> that's not the most loving thing to do. The most loving thing is to show with my sense of urgency and passion, how important it is for you to run from the flame. This is the cup. The other gospels reveal that in the garden of Gethsemane, just previously, Jesus 
was anxious. Some of you know what this is like. Perhaps all of you know what this is like. You've been betrayed. Somebody's betrayed you. Evildoers are winning and you're losing. And what you are facing is your greatest fear and exactly the opposite of what you want. Jesus in the garden is sweating like drops of blood. He's so distressed. His disciples have fallen asleep. We've all got friends like that. We've all been friends like that. I needed you and you weren't there. And they say, you know, I I know what that feels like. You did the same thing to me. Jesus is praying. And do you remember what he prays? Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup, the cup of wrath. Father, if there is a way to save people without me drinking the cup filled with wrath, that's the choice that I would make. But not my will be done, thy will be done. Jesus submits to authority and does what is best for others, not himself. That's leadership. That's leadership. Jesus knows that he is going to the cross and on the cross, he will drink the cup of the wrath of God. You have been saved. If you are a Christian, you have been saved. From what? The wrath of God. Not a low self-esteem. Not a negative self-image. Not from the inability to fully accomplish your potential. It's a fearful and dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You are saved from the wrath of God, by the love of God, for the glory of God. You are saved from God. You are saved by God. You are saved for God. When Jesus went to the cross, there was a cup that was filled with all of your sin, all of your faults, all of your failures, all of your rebellion. And Jesus drank every drop. On the cross as God is suffering and dying in the body of Jesus, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. Jesus took your place. Jesus endured your wrath. Jesus took my place. Jesus endured my wrath. My great honor is to tell the truth. Your great responsibility is to make the most important decision you will ever make. 
And that is, will I trust that Jesus drank that cup or will I choose to drink it myself? Everyone fills a cup and every cup will be emptied. Either Jesus drank it or you will drink it. John wrote another book called Revelation. He peers into the end of history. Chapter 14, verses nine and 10, speaking of those who reject Jesus. It says, and I quote, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Jesus not only rules over heaven, Jesus rules over hell. When it says that Jesus is Lord over all, there is not an inch of creation. There is not a dimension in the unseen realm that is not under the dominion of Jesus. Satan does not rule hell. Satan is sentenced to hell. Jesus says that hell was created for the devil and his angels that they will drink the cup of wrath and God's fury for all eternity. The punishment fits the crime. God is just. Hell is real. Heaven is real. Jesus is real. And it says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. It echoes the last line of the book of Isaiah. Satan and demons sentenced to hell. Every evil they have done filling up a cup of God's wrath that is poured out on them and they are drinking it through suffering for all eternity. There is no possibility of salvation for Satan and demons. For you, my friend, there is a great gracious offer that God makes. It's an offer that is not offered to the fallen demons. It is only offered to those who bear the image and likeness of God. You need not drink your cup because Jesus drank that cup. There is a possibility for you of salvation, not damnation, of relationship and not eternal torment. I get very frustrated when people are like, I don't think it's right God sends people to hell. Look, I'll tell you what, everybody deserves hell. I'm so glad that I'm with Jesus and that I get the gift I do not deserve and I receive the gift I have not earned and that the cup with my name on it is not to be drunk by me. It was drunk by Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Think of it, my friend, in this way. You're going to die. You're not gonna stand before a mirror and give an excuse. You're gonna stand before Jesus and give an account. And there will be brought forth a cup with your name on it. And one of two things will be reality for all eternity. You look in that cup and it's empty. It's empty. And Jesus says, I drank it. Take this cup, go sit at my table. I'm gonna fill it up with blessing forever. Or you're gonna get that cup, you're gonna look in it, and it's full. I didn't get away with anything. I was storing up everything. It's all right there. I'm gonna drink this forever.
Earlier in John's gospel, he said it this way in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, cup of blessing. Whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Everyone fills a cup. Every drop in the cup will be drank. Either Jesus drinks to empty your cup or you drink for all eternity because you are the one that filled your cup. I've had people walk out today Don't, don't walk out in your heart. Don't be like Judas and just sit there and say, I hear it, but I don't believe it and I'm not gonna act on it and I disagree. Judas sat under Jesus' Bible teaching for three years and at the end gave him the finger. Jesus, that's all you need to know. Jesus, that's all you need to believe. Jesus, that's all you need to trust. Some of you in your hearts have been like, I just don't think this is right. Let me ask you this. What have you done for your enemy? What have you done for your enemy? I was God's enemy. This is what he did for me. That's amazing. I'm no better than Judas. I'm no better than a Roman soldier. I'm no better than a Pharisee. And I'm at least as much drama as Peter. Let me close with the last slide. False narrative. So the band of soldiers and their captain officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That's a joke, right? Jesus is only arrested and bound because he allows himself to be. If you say your name and everybody goes down, you don't have to go to jail. First, they led him to Annas for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas and Annas, what they are, it's, it's like a marionette and a puppet. One is controlling and the other is playing. This is how religious politics works. There's always somebody who seems like they're in authority and then someone who is actually in authority. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He was not a godly man, but God did use him to utter a prophecy. Let me explain this. It's a false narrative. A false narrative is this. We create a story that is not true. And then all data gets interpreted by the false narrative. I'll give you an example. Earlier, Jesus cast a demon out and healed a guy. And what did they say? They didn't say he didn't heal the guy because he did. They said he did cast out the demon and heal the guy, but he did it by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. False narrative. He healed a guy, but he has demonic power. The false narrative here is Jesus is very popular, very controversial. There's political upheaval, there's religious upheaval. 
you know, people, somebody's gonna get hurt. This is sort of a frenzied pitch. This is turning into a mob riot situation. We're really left on the horns of a dilemma. We either kill Jesus and then the riot goes down or we let Jesus live and then lots of people will die. Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be more godly? Wouldn't it be more loving if we just killed Jesus and saved more lives? It's a false narrative. Don't believe any false narrative about Jesus. Our world is filled with false narratives. He wasn't God, he was just a good man. He wasn't God, he was just a prophet. He, 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 he just loved everybody, nobody's going to hell. You know, you, you'll die and go to a better place. Oh, that Old Testament stuff, they, were, they tried their best. They were just, they were primitive. They weren't evolved like us. They didn't, they didn't have the insights that we do. Or the God of the Old Testament, he was angry, but the God of the New Testament, he's not like that. Or you know what, there's nothing to worry about. Everything's okay. That's just somebody's opinion. It's a really old book. They did the best they could. Jesus was trying, but you know, we all, we all get it wrong sometimes. Don't believe any false narrative about Jesus. What Jesus is doing here is he is rewriting the course of human history. Adam and Eve, Satan showed up in a garden to deceive them, to sin and bring death. And God guarded the tree of life so that they would not live forever, separated from him with an angel who pulled a sword from its sheath. Jesus shows up in a garden. Satan shows up in the garden. Jesus does not sin. He is going to die for sin. He is going to provide a way of salvation. And when Peter pulls the sword from his sheath, he says to put it away. need to think about this. You need to think about all of this. Here's what I think. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. He died. And he rose and he returned to his throne in glory. And one day he's coming again to establish a kingdom that will never end. And in that kingdom, there won't be any more demons. There won't be any more rebellion. There won't be any more sin. There won't be any more injustice. And there won't be any more darkness. There'll just be Jesus and his people and he's just gonna keep filling your cup with blessing. And you're never going to cease enjoying the provision of his blessing. Thank you, God. I'm gonna pray for you, because I love you. We're gonna sing and worship, and we're gonna take communion. We do this every week. When you partake, remind yourself, 
Jesus drank my cup so I can partake of this cup. When we partake of communion, remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, that he drank the cup of the wrath of God and then he gives us the cup of blessing, amen? Father God, I just wanna pause and pray for these dear people. Uh, Lord, I believe that hard words produce soft people and that soft words produce hard people. God, if all we ever get are soft words, you're amazing, there's nobody like you. You're a good person, you have a good heart. It produces a hardness, Lord. We're hard toward our sin and we're hard toward our savior. And Lord, sometimes hard words produce soft people. You soften our hearts towards sin and soften our hearts toward our savior. God, I thank you for these people that they give me the honor of teaching them your word. I, I love talking about Jesus. I really love talking about Jesus. And Lord, I know that people can be saved and people can be healed and destinies can be altered because of the strength and power of the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we invite you to give us a moment to reflect and then respond. Um, and God, thank you for not only taking the wrath, but providing blessing. That's amazing. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that, that this would be right now a place that is set apart and that we would be a people who are set apart and that we wouldn't respond like Judas is a betrayer or Peter is a failure, but we'd use this as an opportunity to be a worshiper acknowledging our betrayals and failures, but bringing them to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.